Uh, welcome, Australia, to the new Stand Up Australia podcast, Stand Up Sits Down. So Stand Up is here. We're here each week to discuss and deconstruct the most relevant news stories in Australia and around the world. We'll be looking into the most relevant stories to you, which you may have missed during the past week, doing our best to separate fact from fiction so you can make better decisions about which way you want to go politically and personally. So today on the show, we're going to be discussing Western Australia, which has just introduced a temporary COVID-19 provisions to replace the outgoing state of emergency. Daniel Andrews outlaws spontaneous bushwalking in Victoria. ADHD, ADHD prescriptions double in the last decade in Australia. And is the COVID vaccine knocking out people's immune system and causing injury? So today we're joined by health practitioner and journalist Robin Shooter. She's been doing some amazing work over the pandemic, has been kind enough to take an hour out of her busy schedule to join us today. Welcome, Robin. Thank you for joining us tonight. What projects are you working on at the moment? Tell us more. Oh, thanks for having me on. Okay, so I, I maintain a, uh, a file of topics that I, I'd like to cover at some point in my Substack, And as you can probably imagine, that file just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yep. So what am I working on? I have a couple of, of, of sort of, I suppose, longer term projects I've been working on assembling, you know, some of the best resources for, for treating people who've been injured by uh, the products formerly known as vaccines, um, like, <laughs> like the artist formerly known as prints. Um, so yeah, the, the, the products incorrectly labeled as vaccines when actually they don't really fit the technical definition of vaccines, but you know, those things. So I've been working on assembling resources um like a go to the the draws together your research that it's being done really all over the world but particularly in the u.s not by the nih of course but by independent doctors who are who are trying to help people who've suffered injuries uh, because this is a growing problem and uh i'm seeing more and more people who've suffered injuries um because of these shots and it's like nothing I've ever seen before. I've been in practice since 1995 and I have never seen what I'm seeing these, these people go through. And, and bear in mind that, um, you know, I've seen a lot of people with chronic fatigue syndrome and those kind of post-viral illnesses. Uh, this is not like that. I mean, yes, there's fatigue, but all, all manner of neurological issues and new onset autoimmune conditions, um, um, oh, weird gut symptoms, uh, insomnia. It, it's it's frightening. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's one of my long term projects. And then, man, uh, whatever whatever news of the day grabs me, I, I usually end up writing about it. Yeah. There's a lot of news, so you must be writing that a lot. Uh, rather a lot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of the news, let's get into it. Um, our first story we're going to cover today is. Uh, it's from the WA Today, which is a Fairfax paper. Um, WA COVID state of emergency laws passed first hurdle after bitter debate. So controversial legislation to replace Western Australia's COVID-19 state of emergency powers passed the lower house after a marathon debate that lasted to midnight on Wednesday. The McGowan government passed the Emergency Management Amendment Temporary COVID-19 Provisions Bill which will allow, allow the government to stop using state of emergency powers to manage the pandemic. So while this may seem like um, a bit of a win for the general public, no more state of emergency, uh, I have looked into this. And unfortunately for the Western Australian public, there is really no difference between this and the state of emergency. 
mm. you know, apart from the fact that it doesn't have to be renewed every six months. Yeah, so a rose by any other name, or actually it's the thorn rather than the rose, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So this this reminds me of um, you know, the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben, uh, who, who has been writing really for the last couple of years. Um, I believe his writing on this topic precedes the, the scandemic, but he's been writing about what he calls states of exception, and he has a book out called that. I mean, I don't know what it was called in Italian, but the translated version of it is called states of exception. And this has become the new way of governing. Um, there's all sorts of different ways to define this, but basically the, the rule of law is, is no more when any of these states of exception are, are in force. Yep, yep. And unfortunately, this will be law if it passed into passed through parliament. It gives police the power to come into your house and arrest you or, or take you to a quarantine facility uh, for a disease that is on the wane already to, to the point where it's no worse than a bad cold really um what what do you think the the real meaning for this sort of control is is it mcgowan just on a power trip or is there something more sinister involved yeah um that's always hard to know isn't it as as to whether there are there is string pulling behind the scenes and these politicians are being instructed to to pass legislation like this it's um it's almost impossible to imagine that that they still genuinely believe that COVID in its current form is some sort of existential threat to to you know the health and well-being of their people or the economy of their state. I mean, it's it's absolutely ludicrous. So what's going on here? It's it's more power, more power to them. Mm. It's just yeah. this constant extension of their power and the ability to, you know, override the, or to basically, to basically abrogate the rights that we thought we had. Yes. Yeah. The, the rights I think that people believe the government gives you, which is not true. We've got rights and we, yeah. we, uh, we have those rights and we can only have them taken away from us, not given to us. Yes. Yes, yep. absolutely. But that, that security of, that a person shall have security in their in their house and be free from you know unlawful or what's the wording of it because I mean this goes back to Magna Carta uh, which of course you know didn't actually apply to the peasants it was for the barons but but you know one of the rights that was enshrined in that was was that there would be um, the people were basically protected in their homes that themselves and and their you know their bodies and their personal effects would not be subject to you know to unwarranted search and seizure and that's i mean you know it's such a fundamental right it's so um it's so pivotal to again you know what what we thought our lives as australians were about that you know if we were not breaking a law i mean obviously if you've just robbed a bank and the police burst into your home Okay, fair enough. You're up at bank. You shouldn't have done that. But we're talking about people who just, what, tested positive on what? On a PCR test? Give me a break. Yeah, yeah. It's it's absolutely stunning that, the first of all, the Western Australian public hasn't sort of risen up and said something about this. Look, maybe they have, but I haven't seen it. Um, so yes. far, maybe, maybe of, they don't even know this this debate uh, took place because they're being distracted by you know the war in Ukraine and the Queen's funeral and now we have a new king and blah 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly they snuck under the radar. Yeah. But I do I do recall in Victoria last year when Daniel Andrews was uh, you know jostling for this type of power in his new pandemic um, bill, where there was a massive uprising. 
in Melbourne. Like close to 250,000 people hit the streets. Yeah. And that wasn't just anti-vaxxers and all these types. It was people, it, I knew people that had gotten their two jabs, were, were oh. pro-vaccine yeah. and still got out there on the streets. But they could totally see that, that this this was just a naked power grab and, and they weren't having it. Yeah. 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 And, it, and it reminds me of, um, I know I brought this up last week, but um, 9-11 has been very, very recent. Um, mm. Just this week, Joe Biden has extended the state of emergency Again. from 9-11, yes. from 2001. Every, That's 21 years Every now. president has. Yeah. You know, every yeah. single year they renew that state of emergency. Where is the emergency? There is no Where? emergency. It just, yeah. just shows once the state of emergency is called, it's never going away but but i um i don't know if you've if you've caught the the final chapter of james corbett's uh documentary series on i have yeah yeah and the point he makes at the end is is really well made which is this was never about islamic terrorism this was always you know that patriot act was always all about eventually at some point redefining the terrorists as domestic terrorists and that's Definitely. what we've got going on here. I mean, you're you're basically a you what a biological terrorist for for having some virus up your nose, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. And you know who wrote the um, Patriot Act in the first place in 1997? I know Joe Biden claims credit for it. Joe Biden, yes. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not sure that it really was his handiwork because no, I'm not sure he could do anything sort of. It's slightly yeah. sort of <laughs> intelligible he's, like that. He's prone to exaggeration, but <laughs> but he claims credit for it, which is amazing. Why on earth would you claim credit for that? <laughs> oh, well, he's protecting the uh, the public, you know. Yeah. He's doing a great thing. It's yeah. so protected. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on, on to our next story now. So uh, this is a bit on a bit of a lighter note, but also quite draconian at the same time. Uh, Dan Andrews is slammed for nanny state rules in Victorian parks. So Dan Andrews has been accused of trying to install nanny state rules across the the state, city and regional parks. Mm. Walkers and riders caught not using government sanctioned trails could face heavy fines, while swimmers could be barred from some waterways without a permit. The new rules, which will affect more than 50 city and regional parks across Victoria, were outlined in the government proposed metropolitan and regional parks regulations. Changes include a fine of up to $924 from walking off a park trail. What country are we living in again? I mean, this is, do you know, do you know what it reminds me of? Okay. You know that um, the, the, the now infamous uh, 2010 uh, scenarios for the future of technology, the, the Rockefeller document that, that yep. features the lockstep scenario. Um, so in that, there is, um, there, there, there's this vignette where a, you know, a young Indian woman um, is is sort of like she's going to the the shores of the Ganges and she remembers when she was a child that there'd be you know dead bodies and all sorts of things you know floating down the Ganges because that's what they did and then and then the government instituted all these strict controls and now people don't like you know put dead corpses in the river which is fair enough but also that um, like no one can even get access to the Ganges because it's it's like you can't go off the path or they have fences or something like that and and 
uh, again, like the vignette is sort of told from her point of view. And it's basically like she finds it unthinkable that anyone would, would ever break one of these laws and try to dip so much as their pinky toe into the Ganges because the rules are here to protect us and protect the environment. That's what this sort of thing reminds me of, right? So, you know, what is being protected here? You, know, you can't step off the path. What you might crush some grass. Okay, I can understand that if an area is really environmentally sensitive, it's important to to stop people from you know traipsing all over um, a sand dune when there's regeneration efforts or there's some you know delicate species of tree and and you know don't go over there because there's a sapling and if you blunder around in there you might kill the tree. Okay, fair enough. But if you're talking like across the board, you're you could only stay on the path. You can't have any experiences of nature. I think what we're seeing is is really two things. Um, one is is the the connection that people have. Um, and I'm particularly thinking of children in this case. Children always want to go off the path. They always want to go climb trees, right? So that's part of what's being outlawed in this. Then the other, the other aspect of this, which I think is really insidious, is it's like this deification of nature. Oh, you can't step on that grass. That's that's nature. Like you've <gasps> You've offended the nature gods by stepping yeah. on the grass or bathing in this river where you're not allowed. So it's all part of this, this sort of um, this religion, this new religion of, of Gaia, you know, humans, humans are scum. Humans are a cancer on the earth. Humans are a virus, as they say in the Matrix. Um, but but nature has to be venerated and protected from our our terrible icky human depredations. I mean, I don't know. Do you reckon I'm going too far with this? <laughs> no, I, I think you're right on the money. To be honest, so it's, it, it just screams at Agenda 2030 to me. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. you know they want to get us back to a point where we we have more grasslands, we have more more wildlife and we're not allowed there because we're not nature we're humans we're, we're kind of like we're an alien species you're and- allowed to go on those grasslands you're not allowed to actually be up close and personal with that nature mm-hmm. special people will be special yes. people will be allowed to go there but not you and me yep yep and while you know governments and countries are slowly buying up parklands and making them national parks yes uh, for, for the elites um, Make them off limits to ordinary people. Yes. 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 You know, it's just like you can experience nature, but only the one, only the nature that we allow you to experience. It's yeah. just another form of control by this despot totally. in Victoria, totally. who thinks yeah. he owns the state. Yes, and and I think you know, um, I'm not not even sure if he'd be consciously aware of this, but it strikes me that the model for this is uh, was actually set by the World Wildlife Fund. Um, which, you know, I'm sure you know this and many, many listeners yep. will know this, um, was co-founded by Prince Philip and Prince Bernard of the, the, the Netherlands, uh, who was an SS officer. Nazi, <laughs> so, yeah. so that's good. Um, and, and so, you know, one of these, one of these, um, uh, one of the standard ploys of WWF is they will go into, you know, some country, usually an African country or an Asian country, where, where a particular, you know, parcel of land or a particular region has been um, inhabited by usually nomadic people um, or perhaps, you know, people conducting fairly, fairly basic agriculture. And they will 
they will declare this a nature preserve, which means the humans have to be ejected. And so, you know, the Maasai are getting thrown off their traditional tribal lands because, oh, this is a nature preserve, right? But who's allowed to go there? Only people who, who can actually pay for the privilege of going there. And so all this nature that's being preserved, what, what do they do there? Well, quite often they hunt. So, yeah. <laughs> so you know, the Maasai can't run, can't run their cattle there because nature, but you can go shoot leopards, you know, yes. if you have the money for it. And unfortunately for the Maasai, it's the only thing they eat, isn't it? It's just is, uh, cows and milk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they do eat some, some sort of interesting herbs. It's part of the reason why, they, why their cholesterol level is so low, apart from the chronic parasitic infestation. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, not, not my preferred way of living, but, but hey, I mean, you know, they have the that they have this fundamental right to continue their way of living if they so choose and that right is what's being taken away by people who who claim that the preservation of nature is their is their um you know number one priority i think that's highly questionable it's preservation of nature for them not for anybody else yes and they've got a very very strange way of um of sort of getting that across to the public as well while they'll say anything carbon dioxide is bad for the environment while we're in lockdown, everybody's ordering things from Amazon and getting takeaway and there's all this rubbish being formed. Nobody ever talks about that, do they? No, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Do you know what the reaction of the public has been to this? Oh, no, you, you did say that there was, there was some sort of outcry about it. Oh, look, I think nobody's really in favour of it. Um, and Daniel Andrews is not very popular in Victoria. Unfortunately... He's the most popular, unpopular politician in Victoria. Mm. So, mm -hmm. which is pretty much all of them. I just um, I really wish people would come to their senses and realise there's more than two parties yeah, in so Victoria. It, you know, the, um, the opposition, as in the main opposition party, is just unbelievably weak. I mean, God, talk about slapping him with a, you know, with a, with a, with a rolled up newspaper or yep. wet rolled up newspaper. But yes, I mean, there are so many other um, candidates who, if enough people voted for someone who isn't a lib lab um, or one of the, you know, watermelon greens, then there'd actually be a, 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 a possibility of genuine change happening in Victoria. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the least people could do in this in this um, next election in November is just vote independent, you know, just send, at least send a message. And I know most independents are sort of more sort of um, aligned with more socialist tendencies and, and the Greens and stuff, but at least, at least you are sending a message to the government. Yes. Yeah. Not that, not that I really think it matters for this guy. He just doesn't seem to listen. Mm, no, no. And again, I mean, he's one where I, I think that there are some, you know, fairly major puppet strings being pulled um, <laughs> behind the scenes. Well, um, with with uh, Andrews or with the yes. party? Well, yeah. yeah, both of the above, but particularly with Andrews, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, like uh, any great uh, Fabian socialist, which he is, um, <laughs> mm. there's, there's never, uh, you know, there's always something behind the curtain there. So, mm. yeah. yeah, totally, yeah. totally. So uh, story three uh, is right up your alley. Um, it's in the, uh, it, what it is, is we've got prescriptions for ADHD medication has doubled in a decade. Yeah. So uh, scripts for adults now outnumber those for children. 
Rising numbers of adult women are diagnosed with the disorder. People seeking treatment for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are facing months uh, long waiting lists to see a psychiatrist with some clinicians attributing the increase in adult cases to historical underdiagnosis, <laughs> particular in young girls. Mm, the old underdiagnosis. Uh, mm. Yeah. Okay. So I actually wrote an article uh, about ADHD on my Substacks a couple of months ago. Um, I think it was something nice and subtle like the ADHD scam, you know, just, just so that I left people guessing as to what I thought of this. Um, so, yeah, look, the, the thing is that ADHD, um, the diagnostic criteria for ADHD are, are patently absurd. There, there is no biological basis to this diagnosis. It, the, the, the criteria are purely subjective. And th those diagnostic criteria are basically a laundry list of complaints from uh, parents and primarily teachers about children's behavior in the classroom. Like they're inattentive, they um, you know, interrupt, they call out the answer, you know, without raising their hand. They, you know, they wander around the classroom. They won't sit still, this sort of thing, okay? Yeah. To, to which my answer would be, maybe you're a terrible teacher and your classes are really boring. And, and if you actually provided some, some learning material or, or learning or if you structured the children's learning in a way that actually engaged them, you wouldn't have this problem because yeah, yeah. any parent whose kid is being diagnosed with so-called ADHD will tell you when they are actually interested in something, man, you've never seen such concentration. So yeah, yeah. The, the article that I that I wrote about was was this really large scale study. Um, I it's this one is is quite uh, as I say it's you know a month or two old so I won't get the numbers exactly right but it was something like um, it was well over a thousand children um, who were part of part of this particular study and uh, they all had MRI scans and then something like a tenth of these children met the diagnostic criteria. This is DSM five diagnostic criteria for ADHD, and so oh, the DSM five, the one that was created by Merck in the sixties, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the the story of the DSM is really quite fascinating. <laughs> but yes, they, they met the criteria, whatever the hell that means, and there was no discernible difference in in terms of uh, there was nothing on these MRI scans that the scientists could found, could find where they could go. Oh, look, that's that's an ADHD brain, right? So, I mean. <sighs> In other words, this is it's basically an invented diagnosis. Now, it is true that that there is is variation between people in terms of their uh, in terms of their attentiveness, in terms of their ability to concentrate for long periods of time. Just as there is there is individual variation between people in how empathic they are, um, in in terms of you know how open to new experiences and and uh, new. Um, um, you know, new styles of music or new cuisines like people vary a lot in terms of personality and that's highly heritable but that's that is not a disorder this is simply normal variation there are plenty of, of, of kids who um, who are very you might say kinesthetic learners and 
you know, as a side note, my, my kids both went to a, a Montessori, uh, well, preschool and, and primary school. And the Montessori teaching methods involve, uh, particularly in, in the younger ages when children's, children's thinking styles are very concrete rather than abstract, the Montessori um, learning materials are very, like, literally hands-on. So you look at Montessori maths materials and they're teaching mathematical concepts with things that children can handle and manipulate. And you don't see these kinds of, you know, ADHD um, phenomena going on in a Montessori classroom. Now, sure, you know, as I say, some kids have a shorter attention span and so they'll, they'll go wandering around chatting to other kids. Um, but, but, because the the way that a Montessori classroom is is structured and the teaching materials themselves are, are specifically match the developmental level of children, this whole problem of ADHD really doesn't show up in settings like that. So, you know, my take on this is what what is labelled as ADHD is um, inappropriate teaching styles, and parents who who uh, lack some uh, some skills in terms of managing children's challenging behaviours. Now, this whole idea that ADHD has been underdiagnosed, I mean, where have we heard this before? We've heard this with autism, yeah? Yes, we so have. Apparently, apparently um, parents were completely unaware that their children were autistic in, I don't know, the 60s, 70s, or the 80s, when uh, when I was growing up, I was, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s. Apparently, parents had no idea that their, that their children were, you know, smearing their fecal matter on the wall and banging their head and unable to make any eye contact. Somehow they missed that. How extraordinary. So it's the same nonsense line. Um, oh, we, we missed ADHD before. And now you've got all of these, you know, uh, um, as you were saying, you've got these adult women saying, I think I might have ADHD. I don't know, maybe put your mobile phone down, stop watching TikTok videos. And, um, you know, practice extending your concentration through reading something longer yep. than no idea article. Um, you know, maybe, maybe think about nourishing your brain better with, with improved nutrition, actually eating real food. Oh, how about this? How about exercising? How about going outside, spending time in nature? So yes. this is this is just um, yet another way of create of carving out a new market share. So you know, boys traditionally um, the diagnosis of ADHD has been far more common in, in boys than in girls. Oh my God, that's like half the population that the drug companies are missing out on. We mm. better fix that. <laughs> we better say, oh well, you know, these diagnostic criteria that we made up literally for ADHD they mostly apply to boys behavior but girls don't tend to do this sort of jumping out of their seats and wandering around let's make up new diagnostic criteria so we can capture the other half of the market yep yep excuse me if I sound cynical but I think I'm justified <laughs> no I think you're right and there's actually an article which I haven't included in here which I read earlier in the week um and it just talks about why the um the diagnosis is going up and it does reference social media in there and the short videos and all that. So at least they got that right in the, there in the paper. There is a noticeable decline in, in yeah. concentration spans um, across generations. Definitely. And I will post that in the show notes. But it, it's, um, it really just reminds me of the fact that we, the, the world tends to think of 
you know, human consciousness as this robotic force that's just only dictated by chemical reactions in the brain and nothing else. So what can we what can we do to fix that? We can introduce other chemicals to fix it. And the only reason you've got a problem is because you've got a chemical imbalance in your brain. And which even, is absolutely not true. Even yeah. when you've got this um, this this study that was just all uh, it, it was a, an umbrella review that was published well just a couple of months ago. I've got an article on this on my Substack too. Um, basically, you know, putting to bed this whole ridiculous notion which was always ridiculous that depression is caused by you know a biochemical imbalance specifically you know serotonin deficiency even after the 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 entire basis for prescription of ssris and snris is is just it's laid bare that there is no validity to this do you think that's impacted on on antidepressant prescribing rates no No way No. no way no, it takes it takes a good ten years for new information to get out to the the doctors who yeah. are prescribing drugs. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing with. Um, I was just watching something on uh, Alzheimer's drugs, um, amyloid beta plaque um, drugs, which take away the amyloid beta plaque, which has been proven to be a farce because the initial study with mice Broken. was fabricated. Yeah. yeah. So, and do you think anything's going to happen there? No. Huh. No, and and the I mean. All that's going to happen is drug companies will, will just move on to the next target, which will, you know, at some point be similarly shown to be either totally bogus or, or completely pointless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you what, Robin, um, I was diagnosed with adult ADHD back in 2014, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and went on a dexamphetamine and you know paired with a um epilepsy drug which kind of yeah and that was a bit of a wild ride for a few months there i think i almost almost lost myself um and yeah it it was not nice while i got a lot of stuff done I, i lost my personality i lost um any sort of motivation to better myself and i was glad i got off them in the end yeah. I was luck, lucky enough to be uh, in those early stages, quite awake at that stage, anyway. So, but yeah. haven't been on them since. And I, I, you know, what? While I still have trouble concentrating on things that are boring, <laughs> and this is how I explain it to people: they say, "What's ADHD?" I say, "Well, okay, so you put a arty student into a science class mm-hmm. or a maths class. Do, what do you think is going to happen?" Yeah, they just tune out. They, well, they, they start sketching. They start yeah. doing drawing. Yeah, start doing drawings. They start, you yeah. know, um, Artist daydreaming. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so what happens in the, you know, on the other foot, if you if you introduce a someone who's good at just basically really into maths and science into an art class? Mm. Yeah, they just go, what the hell is this? Like, yeah. The, yeah. Same thing. I, so, I you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So what what makes those kids uh, less able to concentrate than someone like who's you know academically smart, let's say? Mm. Yeah, it's just uh, it's sheer lack of interest in the in the subject. But again, you know, give them give them something that they are interested in, and they will be you know in rapt concentration for hours. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you know, what you're looking at here is really it's it's an intersection between a couple of different personality traits, and one of those personality traits is is um, 
bit of a pejorative term, but but it's basically low conscientiousness. Okay, so girls tend to um, perform better academically in school and to to be less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD because they are, particularly at that age, you know, somewhat more conscientious than boys. So they will sit still and, and give the appearance of paying attention, even if they're bored witless and they're daydreaming. Yeah. Whereas boys will, will are more likely to, you know, jump up and move around or, you know, yell things out or, you know, say something inappropriate or whatever. Okay. So what you're looking at there is it, it's really, it's really just um, the difference between the person who, who goes, oh, this is boring as hell, but I guess I better knuckle down and not cause any trouble versus a person who goes, you know, I'm so bored <laughs> and I yeah, can't yeah. contain my myself <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely definitely and uh, girls are better at uh, masking that sort of stuff as well it's the same with autism i went to a, a talk with tony atwood who's the um the world's foremost autism expert um and yeah it was very interesting to hear that uh, a lot of girls don't get um diagnosed with asperger syndrome um and going back to that as well um but i finished the sentence first because they are good at masking it but yeah, going back to the autism spectrum thing is it's very interesting isn't it that uh in the years that we have been seeing the increase in autism we've changed what we used to call asperger's to the autism spectrum disorder so while there are i, I know there are kids that used to be just thought of as a bit odd yeah. uh, and who were who are now diagnosed These friends kind of you know is the weird kid yeah. yeah yeah but in saying that there is no asperger's syndrome anymore Yes, it's so it's been a, defined it, out of existence. And so, has. yeah, that's it. Like the, the, the weird kid from high school who was just a bit odd and, and, you know, didn't have many friends. Well, that person is now autistic. So, so in other words, the whole um, the whole diagnostic category of autism ceases to have any any meaning because it's so diluted down. And these yeah. categories that that range from you know these severe cases, the kids who are in crash helmets because they're constantly head banging, the kids who are toe walking and hand flapping, you know, we give them the same diagnostic label as as the old kid who's who's got some strange interests and not many friends. Like that's just so inappropriate. Yeah, certainly. And, and, and you know, and frankly, it's gaslighting. It's mm. it's yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's actually something I hadn't thought about before. Is that that you know that sort of like narrowing of the field, uh, and just putting everybody in the same uh, in the same boat, and it, it does explain why people are so willing to look over the fact that there are plenty more severely autistic people out there these days, and they just put it down to oh, better better diagnostics. Yeah, yeah, as as if as if those cases could have been missed. Yeah. I mean, what, <laughs> yeah. what do they take us? No, no, no. I'd I'd like to see the the figures on um, autistic schools and see how they've grown over the years because I know that uh, you know kids in the the level one, level two probably aren't going to autist, autistic schools. They're probably going to a, a regular school with an aid. Yeah. Um, but those schools, I, I, look, I can't say that for fact because I haven't looked at the figures, but I'm. Um, I'm betting that they have grown significantly over the last 20 years. Yeah, but it's it's also who's there because I can remember when I, um, you know, when I was at school, there there were you know a couple of special schools in in my area, you know, for for special needs kids. The kids who went there had things like cerebral palsy or Down syndrome. They weren't autistic. 
you know, these were either birth injuries, genetic injuries. It was it was something that had um, affected their developmental trajectory either, and it was either, you know, from birth or, or you know, pre-birth, say in the case of Downs. Um, they, and, you know, uh, I, I had, I had a, a couple of friends who did have siblings who attended these schools. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not like making this up. I had some awareness of, of who was actually in these schools and why they were there. And it wasn't, it wasn't kids with autism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we'd have to do our fact checking on that one mm. before we sort of like stated anything as uh, as fact. But yeah, sure. No, happy to happy to be fact check. If someone's got some information that that disputes that, great. Have at it. But that was yeah, that was my my experience as a kid. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. All right. So our last story of the evening, Robin, um, is one that you'll be interested in as well. It's um, it's about. Look, I'm not going to read the, this article because it's very, it's more of a, an opinion piece, but it, the heading is, I've had COVID and I'm constantly getting colds. Did COVID harm my immune system? And now am I at risk of other infectious diseases? The article goes into basically um, how people who are just getting sick all the time in Australia um, in the last you know, a year, two years, ever since we've had, uh, you know, a major medical intervention that's come out. I'm not sure about you, Robin, but I don't know many people that haven't been vaccinated that have had these issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I'm definitely seeing this in my, in my clients. And this is, this is the, um, I mean, there's, there's a couple of different concepts or, or, um, couple of different I suppose you know explanations for this uh, within immunology um, you know Geert van den Bosch has been talking about the the problem of you know what happens when you essentially um, commit the immune system to one one sort of stereotypical fixated response to a virus and then it's unable to adapt to um, variants of that Yep. But, you know, beyond that, if you're providing this huge, uh, intense stimulus to the immune system and essentially committing, uh, you know, committing resources, committing antibodies to, to fight this one virus, there's also the possibility that resources that should be going to, to fight, you know, influenza virus or RSV or whatever are basically, you know, prevented from doing that. So yep. that's, it seems very likely that that's, what's happening um the the specter of of ade um antibody dependent enhancement has been raised from the get-go because it did show up in animal studies of coronavirus vaccines and it's generally it's generally sort of been held that no we don't really have ade going on but just the other day, I did see a paper that, again, is raising the possibility that ADE might be happening. Now, again, you know, this ADE would apply strictly to, to COVID. So, in other words, people who had the jab and, and then got COVID would, would be more sick from it, as opposed to, um, you know, getting ADE to influenza because you'd had the COVID shot. And okay. that's antibody dependent dependent enhancement. It's where the antibodies that are that are uh, induced by the shot, um, rather than fighting the virus, they actually draw it deeper into the cell so that yep. it, it's better able to infect. So I think that that ADE, you know, it might be a factor certainly in people getting pretty severe um, COVID 
uh, you know, severe cases of COVID, which we are seeing more and more in the people who've, who've had, you know, two boosters, three boosters, God only knows how many boosters. Um, they're, they're the ones getting really serious illness. Now, in terms of what's happening with this, with these really nasty flu strains and, and you know, RSV and so forth, um, there's, I mean, one, one possibility, which I think is really interesting, is that when uh, SARS-CoV-2 first came on the scene, there was viral competition. And it's known that that, that happens. Like if you get a, a new kind of super-duper virus that, that comes into a population and it occupies a particular ecological niche, it can knock out its competitors, at least for a season or two. Yeah, I have heard that. You're the other, only other person I've heard that's actually said yeah. that. And yeah. so, so all the people who said, oh, you know, COVID is just flu, what happened to all the flu cases? Um, in Australia, our reference laboratories were still running tests for influenza throughout, throughout the, the first, you know, years, of, well, throughout the entire COVID period, as a matter of fact. Um, but the, the um, uh, you know, their, their samples were coming up negative for influenza. So it does seem like influenza did get knocked off its perch but now that SARS-CoV-2 is sort of mutated to this really, you know, benign form, it's basically just a cold virus, influence is coming back in again. Now, in the meantime, there's been, um, by the likes, you know, uh, in all probability, some pretty significant antigenic shift. So, in other words, um, like what happens with influenza viruses, because they mutate every, every year, is you can have fairly minor changes in the genome, that's antigenic drift. And then, you know, at times you can have major changes in the genome, which is antigenic shift. Okay, and so if you go without exposure to influenza for a couple of years, when another strain, you know, because new, new strains of influenza grew up in Southeast Asia every year, it's actually been tracked. So it brews up in Southeast Asia and then moves through Oceania and then to North America and Europe and then goes down to South America where it becomes extinct. And then the whole cycle repeats every year. So if there's been some fairly, you know, major changes that, that have happened with influenza and we either uh, because of viral competition or because our borders were closed, you know, for, for a lengthy period, if our population has not been exposed to, to influenza and then you get a nasty strain, man, people get sick because yeah. their immune system really doesn't know how to, how to combat how to how to fight um, this new strain that that sprung up? So it's basically basically a novel virus, then. Yeah, 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 and and the old strategies for for fighting influenza don't work so well on this one. So as as you know, as everything biological is, it's complicated. You know, as Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying are fond of saying, "Welcome to complex systems." So I don't think there's ever just one explanation for this. I do think that there is um, there is a large component of of immune system harm that's being done um, by these shots. Now, whether it's because of this antibody issue, whether there's something toxic in the lipid nanoparticles, that seems very likely. Yeah. Interesting to do a comparison and see how many of the people who got the viral vector shots, so, you know, the AstraZeneca or in the US, Johnson & Johnson, how many people are suffering these, these repeated, you know, COVID and non-COVID infections compared to those who got the mRNA shots? Because that's one way that we could tease apart whether the lipid nanoparticles from the mRNA shots had a specific toxic effect. Yeah. Do you think they'll do those studies? Uh, who's going to finance that? <laughs> and and how's it going to get published? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it's um, yeah. 
the, the the whole field of medical publishing it, it's such a mess it's so utterly corrupt and i i'd like to be optimistic and say oh eventually this will get sorted out and history will be will be written you know to reflect the truth well how often has that happened let's be honest here yeah i mean the, the only the only person you really see in the medical um journal you know sort of industry is peter doshi who who is being very outspoken you know um See the um, New, New England Journal of Medicine. Ah, uh, no, BMJ. The BMJ. Yep. New so, England Journal of Medicine is is a farce. It is yeah. utterly corrupt. And JAMA, all JAMA ever publishes is 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 just you know how's our equity doing? You know, do we have enough <laughs> black, you know, uh, black lesbian surgeons? Yeah. <laughs> Like seriously, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's it's so it's so stupid. Like you know, it's great. I, I love I love the fact that you know you can be diverse and not be judged and go get a job. But yes, look, realistically, do we really need to be um, harping on about it and making <laughs> making sure everything's equitable in yes. like in a job? There's a, there's there's a simple reality. You're always going to have more male surgeons. Because women generally, females generally prefer people, and men generally prefer things. So you're going to see women going into medical specialties like pediatrics, gynecology, you'd hope. Um, you're going to see them going into things like dermatology. You're going to see more men going into surgery because it's like power tools for smart dudes. Mm. You know, yeah. <laughs> like how, how many women go into plumbing? And, and, and do people go, we don't have enough women in plumbing. You know, that's what we need. We need, yeah. we need a drive to get more women to become plumbers, like said by nobody ever. Yeah. So, so why is it that, that we need to have, you know, exactly equal gender ratios of surgery? How is that different to plumbing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, we need more men, men beauticians. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. That just mm. nail technicians. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah no, that doesn't work the other way. Sorry. Oh, no, it yeah. doesn't. I want, I want to play you a clip because this week, um, and I'm just going to share it with you now. Hopefully you can hear it. Because this was uh, Nick, Nick Cotsworth, who was the ex-deputy CHO. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no sound yet. Can you hear that? No, not yet. No. Uh, let me. What ever happened to Nick Coatesworth? He resigned. Fair enough. So, so you can't hear that at all? No, Fred, not. All right, so I don't think that's going to work today for some reason. But basically, Nick, Nick Codsworth there, who, if you're unaware of everyone, he's the ex-deputy uh, CHO. He resigned, I think it was last year. Um, I'm not sure why. But I think it's becoming pretty clear why he did, because he's just come out on Neil Mitchell's show in, in Victoria and has spoken out against the vaccine. Uh, well, sorry, the... the um, the injection the jab the injection um yeah that's and he's, he's I, i've not heard this this is big news yeah, yeah it is it's very big news and he, he's 
he sort of said, you know, mandates don't make any sense because there is quite a significant risk of heart inflammation, myocarditis. And he, he put it as high as one in every 2,000 people, which is quite significant. And that's, I mean, yes, that's a big reason why mandates don't make sense. Um, the main reason is doesn't stop infection, doesn't stop transmission. No. <laughs> yep. If you want to, if you want to roll the dice um, on that, knock yourself out, right? But if if me getting the jab doesn't protect you, why the hell are we talking about mandates? And it's yep. not like it's not like that wasn't evident from pretty early on yep. that it didn't stop transmission. I mean, that was acknowledged by, by Rochelle Walensky in, what, June, August of, of last year. And it was pretty evident from, from before then anyway. And, yes, Peter Doshi had an, had an editorial in the BMJ. At the time, the trials, the vaccine tri- vaccine, um, at the time the clinical trials were still going on saying, hang on a minute, they're not, these trials aren't set up to measure whether it stops infection, whether it stops transmission, whether it stops severe disease. These trials are not set up to to um, uh, to answer the most important questions that people have. Yeah, they never were. They never were set up that way. Yeah. So, so from from the get go, there was never any rational basis for for mandates. But yeah, that's that's really stunning that Nick Coatesworth yeah. is coming out. I actually think it's yeah. going to work now. I've just figured it out, so I will play it for you. Okay. All right. Do we uh, yeah. maintain the vaccine mandates we have, which I think are healthcare, at least in healthcare, do we maintain those mandates or not? Look, the, the mandates are a really difficult one, Neil. From, from my perspective, I'll tell you why. We know that these vaccines can cause heart inflammation. Now, um, you know, there are not huge numbers of, of deaths from heart inflammation, but I think we can all agree that heart inflammation is a serious consequence of having a vaccine and is not the same as other vaccines, non-COVID vaccines. So, you know, are we mandating harm? Um, if we are, then that's a problem. And, and that's one first question. And the second question is, what's the public health value of mandates? Should we really, mm. at this point in the pandemic, take someone out of their job with all the consequences to that individual and their families uh, for, for a disease that really the World Health Organization is telling us we need to integrate with all other respiratory viruses? I think the answer is no. Just quickly, the, the, the um, numbers on heart inflammation are still very low, though, aren't they? Well, from the, from, the, from the vaccine, from the vaccine. I'd say that a consequence of one in between 2,500 and 5,000, that is a high, that is a high uh, side effect uh, ratio for any vaccine. Okay. It's, okay. it's not a high risk, but for vaccines, it's comparatively high. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Um, I think there's a few cocktail party invitations. He's not going to be getting this Christmas. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I have noticed his descent, descent into uh, pseudoscience, as they would like to say. Uh, in the last little while, he's sort of said a few things that have taken me by surprise, but that's definitely um, pretty pretty mind-blowing what he said there. And, there. and there's Neil Mitchell still still trying to push the barrow for, for the shots. But we still need these in healthcare, don't we? Yeah, why, why, don't, why don't we cause myocarditis in one in 2,000 healthcare workers? That sounds like a plan. Yeah, yeah. In, 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 the age, in the age population of, you know, 10 to... 45 50 years old as well where they're not likely to ever ever be compromised by 
the oh, let's face it, if you're cold a virus, they call it COVID nineteen. You've already been exposed to it for heaven's sake. I mean, yeah. unless you haven't seen patients for the last couple of years because you're doing you know one hundred percent telemedicine. If you work in the hospital system, you've been exposed to it. <laughs> End of story. Yeah, yeah. He's not the only one that's come out this week, and uh, well, not not this week. Maybe in the last couple of weeks, he did. But the the very famous um, vaccine vaccinologist. Um, probably one of the most well-known in the world, Paul Offit yeah. in the United States has come out and, and yeah, slammed, <laughs> which is, I, th- I thought was absolutely insane because I've, I've heard Del Tree talk about him for the last three or four years and about how mad he is and stuff. And you've got this guy now coming out and saying that. Maybe to receive 10,000 vaccines in one go, according to Paul Offit. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> a very interesting defection, isn't it? It's insane. It's crazy. And to, for him to come out and say that these things are unsafe, it's that's tells you something. Against, against boosters and, and just really calling attention to the farcical approval process. I mean, why do they even bother having a committee? Why not just say to the drug company, hey, we're, we're ordering a bunch of stocks, send it over, you know? Eight mice, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a show trial, isn't it, really, in the end? It's just like, we'll have you here just so the public can see that we've got experts yeah, here. that's it. That's yeah. it. It's all just for public consumption. They've already rubber-stamped it, but they've got to put on the show. Oh, look, we really are taking care of you all. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, this just has to be a wake-up call for everyone. Um, you you can't trust your doctor to be an unbiased, you know, purveyor of, of medical you know, I was going to say truth, that's not really appropriate. Um, you can't trust your doctor to prioritise caring for you above, you know, making sure they still have a job. Um, you, you sure as hell can't trust your, your, your politicians to make decisions, you know, in your favour as opposed to their, their real constituents. That's not you, you know, newsflash. Um, uh, man, you, you, can't, you can't trust teachers to just get on with the job of, of teaching your children as opposed to it, turning them into lifelong drug addicts um, or, or persuading them that, that they're actually boys, not girls, or, or vice versa, and <laughs> referring them to a gender dysphoria clinic. Um, so come on, people, take responsibility for yourself. Stand up. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah, please, please do it and do it quickly. <laughs> yep, yeah. I've got... I've got- I've got one last clip here, which I think you'll uh, you might have heard it already. It's gone yep. a bit viral this week, but um, it's on the topic of of vaccine injury. Not that they'll say it in this clip, but I found this to be one of the most ridiculously shocking clips I've heard so far in the pandemic. So I just want to I just want to get your opinion on this. I've been into fashion since I can remember. But one day, I had a stomach ache so bad, I didn't want to do anything. The team at New York Presbyterian said it was actually my heart. It was severely swollen. Something called myocarditis. Something called myocarditis. But doctors gave me medicines and used machines to control my heartbeat. They saved me. So now I can become the next great fashion designer. What do you think about that? Yeah, I've um, I've seen this, you know, a couple of times this week, uh, and it's like, where do I even begin? Number one, who are these monsters 
who have basically decided, oh, you know, promoting treatment for myocarditis at our institution, that's a nice little money earner. Let's, let's pop out a little, you know, PR campaign about this. Like, who are these people? And how dare they outright lie? Oh, the doctors gave me medications and they fixed my heart. Yeah, nothing about, you're not going to be able to do any physical exertion for the next couple of months, maybe even six months, maybe even a year. Nothing about how, well, actually, this version of myocarditis is so new that we don't actually have any idea what the long-term consequences are you know, some, some forms of myocarditis, you've got like a 20% risk of snuffing it within a few years. Yep. So it, it's, it's beyond disgusting. Um, you know, it, it's common to hear people ask, you know, how, how do the people behind these things, you know, how do they sleep at night? And my answer to, to, to that is, is it's actually an answer that um, Michael Lunig gave in a particularly, you know, um, acerbic um, um, cartoon years ago. Uh, they sleep on a, you know, on a on a, a feather bed <laughs> with a with a beautiful woman beside them, um, you know, on satin sheets with a clean conscience. Because these people are psychotic. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're psychopathic. Sorry, I, I won't won't confuse my my terminology. These people are psychopathic. So no, they 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 have no trouble sleeping at night. Don't you worry about them. Yeah, they certainly worry don't. About they're, they're outsourcing the murder, so they don't yeah. feel bad at all. I don't feel bad. No. 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 Who knows what's going on in their brains, but there's not much human activity. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Robin, look. On that uh, happy note, hey. <laughs> on, that, on that happy note, we will, uh, we'll, we'll call, it, uh, call it a night tonight. Um, but thank you very much. It's been, been really enjoyable. And uh, I'd love you could uh, join me again in a few weeks' time to have another Absolutely. chat. Love to. Yep. Um, and yeah, um, guys, uh, can you please go and check out Robin's Substack? She's done some great articles. Uh, she's just had an article reprinted by, not reprinted, but linked by Steve Kirsch, which got her, got her a lot more attention. Um, yes. About, about the Novavax vaccine. So give that Steve a read. Steve liked my Novavax one. So, so yeah. He, yeah, he put a link to that in his Substack. And, okay. and boy, <laughs> that got a few eyes online. So that <laughs> oh, was I'm not surprised. It's, it's incredibly well researched and it's a, it's a great read. So give it a go. But uh, where can we find your stuff, Robin? Yeah, so my Substack is, and I should totally know the URL by now. Hang on one moment. <laughs> if you just go to Substack and put my name and you'll find it. But it is it is Robin Tudor, so that's Robin, um, R-O-B-Y-N, and then C-H-U-T-E-R dot substack dot com okay that's that's really the best place to find me i do have a website if you're interested in my in my health services that's empowertotalhealth.com.au but if you want to read my my um my scribblings um follow me on substack yeah fantastic i'll put both of those um links up in the show notes so check it out everyone and um yeah and thank you very much robin for joining us tonight any any final words before we end tonight ah oh, stay strong um love the ones love the ones you're with it's like an old 60s thing you can't be with the one <laughs> love, love the one you're with no <laughs> love love the love the the your friends and family um it's it's our close connections that are our future all of these ideas of of you know like like i said before um being looked after by the government if that was ever if that was ever um a reality it's not anymore so yeah. we, we need to form communities and, and take care of each other's needs. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's a much happier life. Well said. All right. Well, um, thank you very much. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. You betcha. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night.